Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alexandra Otolia-Baird, and today I'll be talking to Nicholas Detering and Isabella Valsaburgla, who, alongside Clementina Marsico, are the editors of the new volume, Contesting Europe, Comparative Perspectives on Early Modern Discourses on Europe, 1400 to 1800, published by Brill in 2019. Nicholas and Isabella, welcome to the show. It's a delight to have you here. Thank you very much for having us. Hello. So we always like to begin by asking um, guests to just tell us a little bit about themselves and how the book really came about and how it leads out of your backgrounds as scholars. Yes. So if if I just um, may start... um, my name is Isabella Walser-Bürgler. I uh, work as a principal investigator at the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute for Neo-Latin Studies in Innsbruck. Um, my main fields of research include early modern politics, the history of the university and the history of ideas and how it is represented in Neo-Latin literature. Um, for those who don't know exactly what uh, Neo-Latin or Neo-Latin literature is, Neo-Latin is basically the Latin used in written and oral form um, in the early modern period, so roughly from 1400 to 1800. And during these centuries, Latin was basically uh, a lingua franca. It was the main means of international communication, quite similar to how uh, we use English today or quite similar to the role that English um, has today. Um, About how this whole book thing got started... Well, in 2015, I started a postdoc project uh, on Europe in Neo-Latin literature. Um, Before, I had been working on the Habsburg propagation of supranationality in uh, the Habsburg Empire. And so 
to kind of expand the look meant for me to kind of uh, yeah go go to a continental scope and look at really um, supranationality ideas of uh, togetherness uh, in Europe. And so when I started, I was kind of looking for people um, to contact and to to work with. People were working on the same topic, and so I found uh, Nicholas on the internet and uh, I invited him for um, a guest talk at our institute in 2016 and so that's really where you know we just sat together we had a coffee we had a chat and we decided that we should collaborate on some level and uh, so there you go a year later December 2017 we organized the conference together and the book that we are talking about today is really the result from this conference um, okay, yeah, well, I'm originally from Germany, but my current position um, is in uh, Switzerland at the University of Bern, uh, where I'm a junior professor of literature. And I'm specializing on um, modern German literature, ranging from the Reformation to the Enlightenment, but my particular focus is on the, on the 17th century. Um, my, my, my interest in the idea of Europe evolved while I was writing my, my PhD thesis at the University of Freiburg. I originally set out to, to write it on the um, reception of French and Italian poetry in Germany in the 17th century. But in order to, to explain why German poets were eager to copy their models, I was going to write a, a very short chapter indeed on perceptions of Europe and cultural transfer among European nations. And um, while, while I was researching for this chapter, which, as I said, I originally conceived to be just a short introduction, I noticed that really very little research had been done on the topic and that, that sources on the idea of Europe in the 17th and 18th century abounded. Uh, and, and so this chapter expanded, if you, if you will, to be my, my, uh, my whole PhD thesis. And it was only after I finished um, the book that I that I learned that Isabella was working on a similar topic, but that she concentrated more on neo-Latin sources. And I had read and translated some prominent Latin texts from the 16th and 17th century, but, but I wasn't aware of just how much more there was, particularly in the in the 16th century. So it was a, a really a fruitful encounter when we finally met in uh, in Innsbruck in in 2016. And, and this was about the time when the, the Brexit had just shattered the idea that, you know, a, the European integration would be a continuous process. Uh, and, and, and so the time seemed ripe, really, for a um, reflection on the history of the, the idea of Europe. And that led to the conference the following year in 2017. And it's fascinating to see how your, your different backgrounds really lead you towards this kind of very... Um, a powerful um, uh, a description of Europe that that you explore in the book. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit about your motivations in producing the book. I mean, you've touched on it here a little bit, but it would be great if you could uh, maybe outline that a little bit more for listeners. Mm-hmm. Well, in the beginning, what uh, Nicolas and I found was really that there was a kind of a research gap uh, when it came to, you know, bringing different findings on Europe um, together, there was hardly any collaboration at the time between the disciplines. You know, 
every discipline had their isolated research results. You know, historians did their historical work. They would quote historians. Philologists would quote philologists, neo-Latinists, neo-Latinists, and so on and so forth. And it seemed quite awkward to us that, you know, all these findings were partly repeating uh, each other, partly complementing each other, but no one really seemed to, you know, uh, attempt to to bring it all together to, to one big whole to really understand what Europe was about uh, in the early modern period. And um, so when we first talked about, you know, doing something, some sort of conference, some sort of, you know, get together, whatever it would be, um, for us, it was quite clear from the beginning that it would have to be something interdisciplinary and, you know, bring some fresh impulses um, to it. Also, if, if I might add, I mean, of course, our interest in the topic also came from some of the events that transpired during the last couple of years. The Brexit, as I said, the migration crisis, the rise of an anti-European populism. So all these events may have contributed to, to, to why we're interested in the origins of the discourse on Europe, even though we didn't set out to publish a direct comment on the politics of the day and, and our volume doesn't include any 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 concrete political um, commentary of any sorts. But it, it, it did contribute to why we're interested in the topic in the first place, I think. As someone based in Brexit land currently, um, <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this is very familiar. And we will certainly come back to that, I think, later in the, um, the interview. I think it's very difficult, as you say, to kind of not think about it um, with the kind of current circumstances in mind. But um, <laughs> Isabel, you've, you've just touched on this, but maybe you could um, give us a little bit of background about the types of scholars who were contributing to the volume in their fields um, and perhaps then also the audience of this book. Because as you say, it's, it's incredibly interdisciplinary. Um, it really tries to bring together these disparate um, fields and disparate um, concepts. Um, so it would be great to hear a little bit more about that. Yes. So as I said, we really tried to combine a variety of fields and a variety of scholars from these fields. So, for example, in this book, you find uh, neo-Latinists, um, you find um, scholars of German literature, of French literature, Portuguese literature, Russian literature. Then we have um, scholars representing different strands of um, history. We have like the classical straight historians of early modern periods. Uh, we have art historians, cartographic historians, and... Um, we really believe that this is actually one of the strong sides of the book, right? To um, kind of bring the different insights together, also the different kind of approaches, because every discipline has sort of a different approach to sources, even to kind of how things are being argued. And um, also we have a lot of different sources that come in. And I, I have to say, you know, I'm very much focused on the Neo-Latin side and Nicolas certainly on the German side. And I was certainly not aware of what was going on in Russia in the 17th century. I was not aware of what was going on in Portugal at the time. So, um, and I, I think that's really the case with most uh, people. They have like a sort of, like naturally, a sort of restricted view on the sources because you cannot work on everything. It's just impossible. But um, here, I think it's really useful to have other people come in who are experts in, in other fields. And so when it comes to the audience, um, of course, we wanted to uh, address um, 
in the first place, people working on concepts of Europe, people working on Europeanness, uh, specifically people who work in in all those disciplines that I've just uh, mentioned, um, because we really wanted to raise an awareness among them of the connection between the different fields, between the different um, studies. And maybe that was our hope that we could also, you know, by giving an example ourselves, incite some more interdisciplinary uh, collaboration uh, uh, in that respect. But of course, in uh, in a second stance, we also uh, hope to address anybody that is interested in the history of Europe and interested in how the integration process kind of evolved as of, let's say, 1400, 1450, because there's always some interesting parallels and uh, similarities, uh, you know, between then and now. And I think we'll yeah, probably come back to that um, later. And there certainly is something for everybody um, in this book, as you say, that there's is the rich interdisciplinarity of it um, is really, really striking, not only as a methodology, but also just in the content presented, um, which I'm sure combined with the very arresting title of Contesting Europe um, will make people pick it up uh, very, very quickly and enthusiastically. Um so I'd like to just ask um, if you could outline the general structure, because there is so, so much in this book. Um, so if you could outline the general structure and, and how it progresses within within the book for, for the listeners. Sure. So, so we've um, tried to systemize our contributions by um, arranging them into three sections. So the first group of articles um, s- survey the, the various ways in which Europe was embodied or personified in literary and pictorial representations. So starting in the 16th century, um, scholars began to envision Europe as a queen in distress or a sort of triumphant ruler over the rest of the world, and they depicted the continent accordingly. And some articles in this section um, consider treatises in which the body of Europe was taken very literally as an, as an object for medical scrutiny or, or sexual desire. And, and others consider the various tropes with which Europe is imagined in paintings for churches or the court. And, and painters like Rubens, for example, intertwined their art with political endeavors. So their, their artworks served as an instrument in, in their strive for peace. Um, the, the second section assembled studies on, on processes of the centralization of Europe, the construction of a um, core Europe, if you will, with peripheries and margins. And, and this, I think, is a general tendency of the early modern period, um, namely the wish to sort of create stability and order and norms and institutions. And, and the discourses on Europe were no exception to this. So, for example, an article by, by Katarina Piotrowski shows how, how cartography in the 16th century saw the rise of border thinking, she calls it, of delineating where Europe began and, and where it ended. So while in antiquity, borders were thought of as, as natural, um, early modern cartographers took sort of a more um, uh, constructivist approach, if you will, by taking geometry as their model. And they measured Europe with mathematical precision and determined that its center um, had to lie either around Prague or around Nuremberg. But, but in any case, France and Germany were at the core of the continent. And this had clear political implications. And other articles, such as the one by um, Oran Akopian, inquire after the, the reactions to this image in Russia, for example, or, or in Muscovy, as, as it was called then. 
And then the, the, the third array of articles consider the, the, the political models of plurality and power in the, in the early modern period. So during the, the Thirty Years' War, for example, the establishment of a universal monarchy, a monarchy for all of Europe, was generally seen as a threat. So the powers of Europe, it was argued, had, had rather to be in, in balance with each other. And the articles ask, for example, how, how book series on, on the history and geography of Europe propagated this idea of plurality. So each volume of the series represented a different nation and only the, uh, the, the totality of the series then presented Europe. It was a plurality of Europe. And, and, and other articles examine how, how many treatises, which on the surface argue for peace, had rather discernible a um, discernibly a, a geopolitical agenda, if you will. So the, those are the three um, sections, if you will, which we um, where, where we um, took the various articles and then placed them into each section. And we'll definitely come to unpick them in a moment. But before we do so, um, could you give listeners a brief? overview of the ever, and I mean brief here, I realize that this is a a gargantuan topic, but um, just a a kind of overview of of the evolution of the term and concept of Europe throughout history, because I I realize that many people are probably um, perhaps unfamiliar of this. They think of Europe perhaps as a a modern creation. Um, So it would be great if you could just outline some of the, the kind of ebbs and flows of that. Um, yes, sure, sure. Um, so as you say, Europe is not quite so much a modern creation, but it's actually, well, an early modern creation because it's really the early modern period when it all started. There is some discord in scholarship, I have to say, about really the, well, the origin of the term Europe and a concept, a proper concept of Europe. But um if you really look into the sources, and me as a classicist, I'm quite familiar with the ancient sources. For me, it is uh, quite clear that really in uh, antiquity uh, and in the Middle Ages, Europe played hardly any role as a term and it had hardly any ideological meaning. Um, Of course, ancient culture shaped our modern European culture very much. If you think, for example, about, I don't know, political formats like democracy or the monarchy, um, we have a lot of, uh, you know, Greek philosophy in our Western uh, uh, thinking. There is the the Roman law. There is all this administration uh, that the, the Roman Empire kind of, you know, brought to Europe by transmission through the Middle Ages. But that does not mean by inversion of the argument that an idea of Europe had really existed in antiquity. Um, If we talk about ancient Greece, for example, Greece mostly knew Hellas. You know, there was Hellas and then there was the rest of the world, all just, you know, randomly mixed um, together. And even if I say Hellas, even a pan-Hellenic identity was not 100% uh, realized because people in ancient Greece uh, really identified with their polis. So, for example, you would have the Spartans uh, versus the Athenians as a very um, prominent example. So there isn't even a proper national, let's say, to to apply this term kind of uh, anachronistically here, there wasn't even any sort of national identity. And uh, in, in Roman times, Europe as a term uh, was even less uh, uh, important because the Imperium Romanum actually spent the entire 
world, the entire known world, spanned all three continents, Europe, Asia, and, and Africa. And the Imperium Romanum was often referred to as the Orbis Terrarum, which is basically the entire world. Um, so um, it wouldn't make sense to kind of have any sort of concept of Europe when really your kind of, you know, space of shared uh, identities the world itself, right? And uh, given these sort of um, yeah circumstances, uh, Greeks and Romans uh, in the antiquity only had a very vague geographical notion of Europe, um, and also the the famous myth of Europe and the bull um, didn't have any ideological meaning at all. And uh, ancient historiographers were even uh, unsure about how the, the myth could possibly be tied to the name of the continent. And uh, yeah, so but there were no further deliberations on uh, any sort of um, communality, continental communality. And in the Middle Ages, it was basically quite similar. The term Europe, if it was used at all, it was used in a very vague geographical sense. During the Carolingian times, so 800, 900, um, Europe was sometimes used as a term for the new empire spanning uh, the west of today's continent. It was yeah, they were trying basically to implement a new term that would go beyond Francia or just Gallia, but uh, the term Europe could not really be um, established. And not even during the Crusade, uh, the term Europe played a particular role because, of course, it was European Christians who went uh, towards the East. Um, and it was kind of a joint Christian undertaking. But if you really look into all the crusading uh, descriptions, all these travel reports, you realize that the focus is always um, on, on the fact that these Europeans, they come from different nations. And once the fight was over, they would return to their respective nations. And so also, if anything, uh, then uh, it, it is an astounding lack of, of Europe that you find in this crusading literature. And so the Big Bang really only happened in the early modern period, like Europe all of a sudden expanded. And this had to do with um, several reasons. You know, there were like the explorations uh, to the rest of the world, all those overseas discoveries. Then there was the dissolution of the feudal system and suddenly all these smaller kingdoms were merged into bigger ones. There was a reformation challenging the old ways of thinking and there was humanism in intellectual terms also kind of challenging new uh, or actually challenging the old ways of thinking. And all these um, developments forced the Europeans to reevaluate their position in the world, to reevaluate their position and also to renegotiate um, their position. And so suddenly the usage of the term Europe exploded, right? Europe suddenly is everywhere as of um, 1430, 1450. Uh, and uh, the, the word was even so popular and also not just the word, but also the category uh, as a sort of, you know, system of reference that the adjective uh, European and then you know, the, the plural noun Europeans had to be invented. So basically the language is reacted to the growing collective needs of the European community. And for the first time in history as well, 
Europe gained a meaning beyond just the mere geographical uh, uh, scope. Um, for the first time, we suddenly are confronted with political concepts of Europe, with cultural concepts, with religious concepts, intellectual concepts, and so on and so forth. And this is something that is truly amazing because before the 19th century, continental feelings of shared identity were not actually quite common. Before the 19th century, it was only and exclusively the Europeans who had declared themselves as being one entity, as being one community. And so then in your collective introduction to the volume, you go on and make a very, very powerful argument for rethinking this chronology of the discourse on Europe. And so could you perhaps just explain why the existing literature and scholarship has really seen the idea, this concept of Europe as originating in the 18th century and why, Isabella, you've already touched on this, but why you are refuting this argument? Um, so I think it's it's partly a, a methodological difference. I, I think concentration on the on the 18th century ha- has to do with the role of the Enlightenment in the, in the history of the idea of Europe. Historians in the, in the mid 20th century often argued that the um, idea of Europe meant the idea of a European identity shared by all nations and their feeling of belonging and, and unity. And they thought that a European identity has to have certain um, cultural values that were ascribed to it. First and foremost, Christianity, of course, or the reference to antiquity or the rise of scientific thinking, liberalism and and, and so forth. So they searched for the origins of an idea of identity, peace and unity, or or for the origins of the idea of European culture. And clearly all of these were more prominent in the Enlightenment than, say, in the period of Reformation, even, even though they exist in the Reformation too. And I think our approach is a little bit um, different. We stress more the um, pugnacious constitution of Europe, if you will, and argue that the, the, the political strife that was dominant in the, in the 16th and 17th century um, was a major factor for the, the later Europeanization. So we focus not on, on identity, but on discourses. And these discourses uh, evince a sort of, um, as I said, a sort of strife and, and struggles and conflict. Uh, and, and we stress more that the, the, um, the concept of Europe can also be um, negative towards Europe. It can be political rather than cultural and aggressive towards the rest of the world. So I don't think our contributions give an answer to the question of a European identity, a feeling of continental unity, but rather look at how the term Europe was used in various texts and discourses. And, and the term is often used in a purely political and geographical sense. And people may not have felt that they were emphatically European in, in the early modern period, but they did see that Europe was a central point of reference for their, for their lives. And also, if, if I may just uh, chime in here, um, another reason why we kind of refute the, well, the kind of previous idea of Europe originating in the 18th century is that um, 
with neo-Latin, suddenly a lot of new uh, uh, sources popped up. You know, neo-Latin is a very, very recent field. It only got established at the end of the 20th century. And you could say that uh, it was only properly institutionalized in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, so no one has really ever looked at all these neo-Latin sources out there before. But these new sources, they they gave new impulses and they showed that the discourse in Europe was actually there since the 15th century. And so you could say that one of the successes of the neo-Latin studies have contributed to um, recently is this change of view that Europe really started earlier than just the 17th or, or 18th century. So the first section then of the volume um, is called Embodying Europe, Allegories of the Self and the Other. And this, this section is variously exploring the allegorical visions of Europe in both textual and visual culture. Could you give listeners an overview of the depth and breadth of this allegorical outlook, um, perhaps with a, a couple of references to, to some of the, the examples within the chapters? Yes. So, um, I mean... Among the most popular depictions of Europe in the early modern period were allegorical personifications of Europe. Um, they kind of reached their peak in the 16th century, but they were also partly present still in the 17th uh, century. Um, what we see is that, I mean, we are treating texts more than maps, for example, in our books, but really maps were the first media to kind of implement this sort of uh, allegorical depiction of Europe. Literature would then only kind of uh, jump on it. Uh, and uh, Johannes Putsch, whom um, Nicolas Detering and... Um, Dennis Polina treat uh, in their uh, contribution played a crucial role in that because he was the first to conceive a map of Europe as a, a lady, a queen, and he was also the first to um, to kind of yeah write a poem uh, with like starring basically uh, Europa, the lady, and. In general, the, the, the figuration of Europe as a woman goes back to antiquity, kind of, where figurations of cities and people were usually female. For example, if you think about uh, Roma as the patron goddess of the city of Rome. Um, in the early modern period, those uh, allegories are also female. So Europe is female because, of course, Europa is female by just grammar, but also because the early modern culture was really much uh, a, a male culture. And so depicting a woman for them meant, or it had sort of implications of conquest, of uh, security, of love, things like that. Um, Nicolas has kind of touched on it uh, already before, but um, uh, I will just uh, repeat it. That basically, there were two main strands of female Europe's that evolved in the early modern period. We have, on the one hand, sort of triumphant Europe, you know, where we find this allegorical personification um, rejoicing and, and flourishing, and she's all happy about how Europe looks. And then we have, on the other hand, Europe lamenting. And uh, especially in our book, we have the, the contributions by Nicolas Detering and Dennis Polina and Ronnie Kaiser, who deal with these sort of lamenting Europe. It seems that lamenting Europe seems to be or seems to have been slightly more popular in the early modern periods. Um, 
but uh, then the triumphant one. But of course, this had to do with the political message that these texts were trying to um, convey. Because in all these lamenting texts, you have Europe bemoaning the wars that are tearing her apart. And uh, she bemoans the wars that are inflicted upon her by her own children, as she says very often. And of course, by her own children, she means the European princes who are fighting each other for power and predominance. And a very, very funny example is treated in Ronnie Kaiser's contribution. Uh, it's called uh, Europa Heauten Timorumene, which is a Greek title, and it basically translates to Europe, the self-tormentor. And it's, it was written by a Spanish humanist, Andres Laguna. And um, this is a very, very interesting example because Laguna, in fact, was a doctor. And what he did with his Europa was to depict her as a as a sick, feverish old lady. And in this text, he kind of recounts how one day he was going about his business, you know, medical stuff, when suddenly he bumped into an old uh, sick lady and she was really uh, ugly to look at. And he's kind of revolted by her look. And then she suddenly faints and he has to resurrect her. And once she, she comes back to life, he kind of starts this doctor patient uh, a consultation. And in the course of this consultation, it becomes clear that the, the patient he has in front of him is Europe. The, Europe, the queen, which he had in mind as a beautiful young uh, lady that was kind of seducing every man uh, on the continent. And he can hardly believe what he sees here. And Europe then starts to explain why uh, she's in the state that, well, she, he, he found her, her in. And Again, here we have the, the motive of, you know, her own children that are ripping her apart. And she even applies the, the metaphor of a, of a, well, a sheep, a mother sheep who has given birth and who has nurtured uh, baby wolves who are now trying to get her and who are not really um, caring about her, her well-being. And, um, well, the, the text basically ends with a plea to, to the European princes to make peace and also a very, very strong appeal to Emperor Charles V to kind of take the leading role in making uh, this peace. And with this sort of appeal to the emperor as the leader, we can kind of deduce a very, very specific concept of Europe, which is the concept of Europe as a universal monarchy. So basically, Laguna envisioned Europe uh, under the peaceful control of Charles. So Europe should be but one big empire and all the other princes should be subordinated to the emperor um, in a way. And this is a very, very strong, uh, um, well, statement, uh, if you will. And I think he worked particularly well to promote European integration uh, like that because the, the cooperative moment is very much implied in the corporality of the female depiction. And especially the 16th century, the Renaissance, it was a very visual age. And I think that's also a reason why just in general, these sort of allegorical personifications of Europe worked very, very well.
And it's striking how these images really feel like they could be in the current British press. Um, yes. So, <laughs> Nicholas, I think, I think we have to turn now to your chapter. Um, it's been mentioned so many times now. So this is with Dennis Paulina. And you, here you explore the rise of discourses in Europe in light of the perceived threat of the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. And it's it's a Europe that's very much intertwined with Christianity in which you argue was actually scarce as, as, a, as a kind of concept and image before 1500. And you, you explore this, uh, this really fascinating trope through this wonderful woodcut that um, Isabella's already introduced by Johannes Putsch of Queen Europe. Could you just expand a little bit upon this really fascinating iconography of Queen Europe and, and how it really actually came to be, how it came to be present so, so frequently um, in the discourse? Well, the image of the Queen of Europe is, is, of course, rooted in the ancient myth of the Phoenician princess Europa, which was abducted by, by Zeus in the shape of a bull. But, um, but it is important, I think, to, to stress that the myth of Europe and the personification of Europe were not always identical, as, as Isabella mentioned in, in one of her answers. There are many works of art and literature, especially in the Middle Ages, which draw on the myth of Europa or interpret it uh, make no mention of the continent political or cultural entity. And on the other hand, the 16th century of personifications of the continent, which, which do not employ the bull or other elements of the, of the myth. But the association of Europe with a queen or a princess was, of course, rooted in the myth. And the um, earliest instance of this, um, of this latter invention, the personification of the continent, as far as we know, is a woodcut by Johannes Putsch, and, and Innsbruck, a cartographer from Innsbruck, who, who worked as a counselor to Ferdinand I, the, the uh, brother of Charles I, who was the German emperor in the first half of the, the 16th century. And his woodcut shows Europe as a queen, adorned with a crown and, and with a scepter in her hand. And then it shows the countries of Europe as the parts of her body, from the head to um, her defeat. But it shows the countries without clear-cut boundaries. So it only depicts various crests of the of the countries. And the rest the rest of the countries are not um, and the countries are not delineated um, clearly. And this image, this woodcut, um, has become enormously influential during the, the early modern time and, and well beyond it. While it is quite famous also um, in, in the scholarship, a, um, Putsch also authored a poem which is not so well known. It is called The Lament of Europe, and it addresses Ferdinand and Charles V. And um, uh, actually last year, it was discovered in, in Austria in the Museum Retz that, that this poem was actually attached to the map of Europe in its earliest version of 1534. And uh, Dennis and I interpreted the woodcut with regard to this little-known poem by Putsch. And, and we found, um, again, that the image presented was not one of peaceful unification of the continent, but rather of a universal monarchy under Habsburg rule, a submission of sorts. So um, the, the poem makes clear that only the Habsburgs can really protect Europe from the Ottoman threat and the various other dangers. So after the, the, the fall of Constantinople in, 15, in 1453, um, the, the, the Ottomans were perceived to be the, the great threat to Europe. And, and Putsch argues that only a united Europe, but united under Habsburg rule, could really be strong enough to, um, to oppose the Ottomans. And the Habsburg should rule over the continent. 
Now, now interestingly, a French humanist, um, Hubert Susanet, wrote a reply to this poem in the 1530s, in which he countered this very partisan vision of Europe with a French counter-vision, in which only Francis I, the, the, the king of France and the enemy of Charles, can save Europe from the dangers of the Reformation. So it's not the Ottoman threat, or not only the Ottoman threat, but also the, the Reformation, which, of course, had only broken out 20 years earlier in the Holy Roman Emperor. And Susanne now says um, the greatest um, threat to Europe is also is, is the, the Reformation, and only Francis I can really save Europe and can, um, can rule over it. So in a, in a way, we argue that the very image of a European body politic evolves not from the um, idea of um, a peaceful unity or plurality, but from an argument between Putsch and Susanne and many others, from a conflict between rivals, Charles and Francis, and from the literary fights between the, the learned humanists of, um, of the time. And I believe this is a good example, um, this struggle between, between parties, of what I call the, the pugnacious roots or the pugnacious constitution of, of Europe in early modern times and maybe even in the present day. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So the second section um, of the book is called Centralizing Europe, Constructions of Peripheries and Boundaries. And it explores how Europe became increasingly perceived and constructed as, as Northwestern Europe, as, as you've already mentioned, namely Germany and France, um, in order to, as you state, immunize Europe against an alien other. Um, could you explain how this evolution was was linked to wider processes of globalization in the early modern period um, and perhaps give some examples of this centralization as was experienced both in the center, so this new center of Europe and in those peripheries and boundary states? Well, you mentioned a very, very um, interesting point here, which is the othering, othering in order to define Europe as a whole. And Europe in the early modern period got constructed very, very much by demarcating the continent and its people from everything decidedly non-European. And we found there are three main ways how this was basically done. First, there was the anti-Ottoman uh, argument, which is mainly a religious and, and cultural argument. So, uh, you know, the, the Ottomans as the big threat in the early modern period 
they, of course, uh, cherished the Muslim faith. And so the Europeans who cherished the Catholic uh, faith, they, they would uh, make religion as the main, to, to their, to the, as the main argument, basically. They would say everything that is not Christian can never be European. And, in an interesting way also when it uh, when it was about you know going against the ottomans suddenly also the the catholics were able to kind of overcome the the splits um, of, of confession between, you know, the Protestants, Catholics, the, the Orthodox um, churches. So religion was a very, very strong uh, argument in that respect. Um, the second way of, uh, uh, you know, distinguishing themselves from um, non-Europeans are tied to the, um, well, the Jesuit missions, but I should say not only the Jesuit missions, but also, you know, Benedictine, Franciscan, other orders, uh, missions into the world. But of course, the Jesuits were like the, the, the biggest order to kind of pursue these um, missionary goals. And of course, this is also a very strong religious and cultural um, argument, because when the, the Jesuits, for example, set out uh, to China, uh, in the 17th century, they brought with them prisms, astrolabs, and all sorts of other technical devices to kind of prove uh, to the, the Chinese people that um, if Europeans had been able to kind of, you know, uh, um, create these things, then the Christian God really must be the only true God because he's the one who kind of um, endows uh, people with their abilities and with their scientific and intellectual skills. And then on a, in, in a third um, a respect, we have, uh, of course, the topic of uh, coloni colonialism and overseas um, trips. So Europeans basically set out to conquer the world. And there is a lot of travel reports and descriptions of the barbarian other that the Europeans uh, encountered. And of course, they set this barbarian other in opposition to civilized Europe. And Europe, in that was respect, was really made the center of the world who is dominating the rest. And there is a very famous um, uh, metaphor that uh, the Bohemian uh, humanist Johann Amos Comenius uh, applied because he compared Europe to a big, big ship and uh, gathered around this ship uh, is basically the rest of the world, which is just, you know, small barbarians in small little boats. And of course, um, Already, you know, the designation of the European ship and just the barbarian boats says a lot about the perception of Europe at the time. Um, but also Comenius kind of argues that we, the Europeans in our ship, we need to, to make friends with these barbarians in their boats because otherwise there is a danger that they might one day get together and attack us. So we bring to them the Christian faith. We bring to them all the intellectual, the scientific achievements that we have in order to kind of, you know, civilize them, but also make them dependent on the Europeans. And in, in, in the contributions in this section of the book, we, we can see very well how the different nations, both in the center and the periphery, try to Europeanize themselves 
let's say, in the face of the rest of the world. For example, you have Lucy Stochova talking about the, you know, bohemian stories of origins by professors at the university in Prague in the 16th century. And they would kind of try very hard to argue that the bohemians uh, are not of Scythian or Asian descent, but that they are properly born Europeans in order to render them credible and authoritative uh, as, as intellectuals. Then we have, for example, in the contribution of Ovanes Akopian, um, the Russian uh, sort of perspective where he shows that there, there were many Russians, even before Peter the Great as the first Russian Tsar who visited the continent in the 17th century, there were Russians already before who were trying to prove that they, uh, they, they had cultural assets that made them European that were similar to that uh, of the people on the continent, no matter whether they lived in the northern or in the southern or in the western part uh, of the continent. And then you have even definitions of center and periphery in some of these uh, national um, perspectives. For example, um, Portugal, the contribution by Peter Hanenberg, uh, you see that Portuguese people in the 16th, 17th century, they, they admit, they say, yes, we are part of the European periphery. We know very, very well that the, the continent is mostly directed by France and Germany. But look, here is what we can contribute to Europe. And here is what we can do to help you defend uh, Europe against the, the advancing Ottomans and so on and so forth. So it's only really in a European context that the single nations uh, often set themselves apart from each other when it really came to kind of, you know, looking on a bigger scheme, looking out to the world, then Europe all of a sudden by just magic seems to be, well, united uh, in a way, or at least connected by certain um, cultural or, or uh, political values. And I think that's very, very interesting uh, what we can see very well in, in this section of the book. And once again, those parallels are just so uh, tangible, you know, this, this, uh, this vacillation as to what it means to be European, these European values, where we draw the boundaries of who and who is not who, uh, in the European Union. It really, yeah. it really hits home in, in that section, I think. I mean, it does throughout the entire volume, but um, I think here it was p particularly um, striking. Nicholas, sorry, did you, did you want to add something? Uh, if I may, just on the perception of the of the extra European other, it's um, of course it's it's clear that early modern contemporaries it's absolutely true that that they had little doubt that Europe is vastly superior, really, to all other continents, and uh, and it's it's often shown Europe actually as 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 um, triumphing over over Asia and and the Americas. On the other hand, though, there were some tendencies, especially in in France in the in the 16th century, to bring forth a sort of early relativism to compare seemingly sort of wild and primitive Native Americans favorably to to Europeans. And this is uh, true in in early traveling accounts of the Americas, uh, for example, by Jean de Lery, a contemporary of Montaigne, who um, in his report on his travels to Brazil, narrates a number of dialogues he apparently held with the natives and where he says that they cannot understand why Europeans are so vain, why they make so much effort for the provision of the future, it's unnecessary, why they travel so much and so forth. 
and uh, and Montaigne took these accounts and criticized the Europeans for their for their cruelty, for example. So he says in one of his famous essays, he says that the the Tupinam, the, the natives of of uh, in in what is now Brazil, they may be cannibals, but the the horrors of the Bartholomew Day's massacre in France were in fact much greater than cannibalism. So there were signs of an early relativism, and and this was later then extended to China and Persia. Uh, in in if you think of Mont- Montesquieu's Lettre Persane in the in the early 18th century, for example. So the Europeans like to imagine how Europe would look through the eyes of the other, and 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 how strange they themselves must seem. But but all of these attempts at relativism are of course Eurocentric. I'm not saying that. Um, that they're not Eurocentric. One could say that they simply adapt certain modes of reflection which were established um, in antiquity, satirical writing, for example, and that they uh, weren't really interested in the reality of, of other cultures, that they simply uh, used the noble savage, as at, it was then known in the 18th century, as a um, stooge for a kind of satirical self-reflection. Um, if I could just uh, add something here, I, I think that what we see here very well is that I think the vernacular sources in that respect um, are a bit different to what mm. the Neo-Latin sources portray, because, of course, the examples that I took uh, mm. were mainly taken from Neo-Latin literature. And, of course, Latin as a lingua franca sort of transcended uh, national boundaries, uh, uh, by nature, if you would say. And of course, it makes a difference if you choose to write about Europe in Latin mm. or if you choose to write about Europe in, in, in French, for example, if you're talking about uh, Montaigne. And I think that if you if you were writing in the vernaculars, you kind of made a commitment to the national cause more than you would naturally do when you used Latin, for example. And I think that that's, that's kind of an interesting insight to have already from this sort of interdisciplinary approach that different sources also tell a different story depending on really, um, well, their international or their national usage in a way. I'm going to push us on to the final section, um, which is called um, Balancing Europe, Discourses of Plurality and Power. Um, and so this ex- uh, section of the volume is exploring the various ways in which the balance of powers in Europe was conceptualized. So this ranges from the harmony of parts to the European contest of nations or this kind of pugnacious Europe, um, as Nicholas has mentioned could um, could you give listeners just an overview of the different ways in which the concept of Europe was was woven um, into these political discourses and discussions, um, perhaps mentioning a, a couple of examples from the chapters? So uh, I, I'll just uh, start. Maybe Nicolas also has some interesting uh, things to add here. Um, just generally on the on the the concept of Europe as a balance of powers, uh, I should say that this was basically a a concept that was generated in reaction to the concept of the universal monarchy. And so it also had its heyday in the 17th century, whereas the universal monarchy was really, well, had its heyday in the 16th century, basically. And the reason why the 17th century was so strong on on that concept of the balance of powers is that uh, during and after the Thirty Years' War, it became quite clear to most Europeans that 
territorialism was simply too strong to turn Europe into one empire. So uh, sort of a new promotion of sovereign states uh, started. And I think the the article of uh, Stefan Ehrenpreis and Niels Grüne show very well how this uh, idea of a sovereign state, a Europe of sovereign states, um, served as sort of a distinction to all the big empires in Asia, because those empires, if you talk about the Ottoman Empire, for example, about the Persian Empire, for example, these were empires that were known as being very, very despotic and uh, of course, Europe didn't want to be perceived as a despotic sort of continent full of uh, tyrants ruling over kind of, you know, uh, subjects devoid of any, any, any liberty. And um, in a way, you could say that this balance of power idea is still reflected in our current motto of the EU, which is um, uh, diversity in, in unity. And because the plurality um, is, is basically a plea for tolerance and harmony. And there are a lot of Latin texts in particular promoting the plurality um, of Europe. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any of these texts in this section, but I'll just mention one here. It is the Econ Animorum, the Mirror of the Minds, by the Scottish-French humanist John Barclay, who lived around the turn of the, um, the 17th century. And here we have basically a mirror of all European nations or the nations that he thought to be European. And at the end, he tells uh, an anecdote where, you know, he has taken a walk uh, and, and climbed the hill in Greenwich. And at the top, he had like a wonderful overview of everything beneath him. There were the, the red roofs of the houses in London. There is the blue Thames. There are the, the colorful boats on the Thames. There is like the, the green fields uh, in the distance with white and gray and black sheep and everything. And he, he's just like taken away by, by the look and, he tries to find out what is the most beautiful about this look. And in the end, he comes to the realization that it's not one particular thing that kind of makes the look beautiful, but it's really the, the overview, everything that kind of, you know, makes uh, his view beautiful. And this is a very, very strong statement for, you know, tolerance and, and plurality uh, in Europe in, in a text that basically explores the nations and people and their customs of, of, of Europe. And um, apart from the Latin literature, we also have vernacular um, literature that is very, very strong on this concept of balance of power. And especially in a public genre that is closely tied to politics, that is newspapers, journals, and, and, and lexica, encyclopedia. And we have the contributions of Zucchi and Bauer in, in this section who, who can show that very well because uh, Enrico Zucchi, he really shows how newspapers in the 17th and particularly then in the 18th century were used for creating international networks. And what played a very, very uh, important role in that whole process of international networks was also the simultaneity that the newspaper editions kind of, um, well, insinuated to the European publics. 
and the knowledge of what was currently going on in other nations at the same time that you know you are living your own life here this kind of sharpened uh, an awareness of, of, of Europe and European community in general and it also kind of contributed uh, at least slightly to a more tolerant view of thinking and of course this ties in very much with you know 18th century enlightenment and you know please for for tolerance and acceptance um and also the, the newspapers, they contained a lot of reviews uh, of books. So uh, via this scientific and scholarly route, Europeans could also assure themselves of their still high standing position uh, in the world, so to say. And Volker Bauer, on the other hand, he has a very, very interesting example to present, at least the so-called Renger series. So this was a series of, in some 80 volumes uh, in Germany in the early 18th century. And each of the volumes, sometimes also more volumes at one, um, represented one state of Europe at the time. And this Renger series turned out to be immensely popular. And of course, it didn't just, you know, appear all at once. It wasn't published uh, 80 volumes all at once, but it was uh, volume one, volume two. And apparently the European readership found it very, very interesting to get to know about, you know, the the other nations in Europe and what they're uh, up to. And so they they kind of bought up this entire series and they had to reproduce and reproduce constantly to kind of keep up with the with the European um demand. And both these um examples of Zuki and Renger they also show that there was some sort of commercial and economic activities uh, in which journalism is usually involved to that um contributed to the development of, of Europe, not only in an affirmative, but also in sort of a refuting sense. You know, there were a lot of quarrels also in, in the newspaper where, you know, one newspaper reacted to the article of another newspaper, one review reacting to the other. And of course, there were also lots of um, uh, representations of feelings of national superiority and pride. So while these journalistic sources contributed on the one hand to let's say, the development of a united Europe. It also contributed to sort of a fragmentation of Europe that would later then in the 19th century lead to the nationalism. But at any rate, what we see here is a Europe in the process of making whatever it would then be. And, and, you know, your own contribution to that um, section, Isabella, is really fascinating. So you, you explore how early modern geographical descriptions um, are determined by political mechanisms. And, and it, it's kind of, it's, it's fascinating to see how this early modern geopolitics um, is really becoming embedded into this discourse on Europe. I don't know if you, you maybe just want to quickly um, just, just frame that um, for listeners. Yeah, um I think something that we have not quite covered too strongly in the book is really the sort of geographical, cartographic side um, of, of, well, European integration. But I think uh, the geopolitical approach kind of brings it together because uh, geography, uh, geographical and political understanding of Europe are, of course, closely tied to one another and they are partly influencing um, each other. And, of course, these the most geographical description of Europe is never value-free. 
right? They, they represent just biased constructions of Europe. They represent interpretations uh, of facts, as Michael Windler famously stated it once, who is also part of our volume. And geopolitics in itself is quite a problematic term. It's charged since its appearance in the 19th century when German scholars developed this organic theory of the state, where states, you know, could expand with just along their political ambitions and devour other states. And this sort of thinking then fed perfectly into the Nazi ideology. So we always have to be careful when talking about geopolitics. But I used it very much uh, in the sense of the 20th century French school, where geopolitics is basically just a tool for policy consultation to predict international um, behavior. And so constructing Europe through geopolitical thoughts um, worked very, very well in the neo-Latin sources, um, at least. And uh, just to mention one crucial example, there is a didactic poem of, um, well, very, very large size by a German guy called Curiacus Lentulus from 1650. And this text seems to be very much a sort of geopolitical introduction of what Europe is. He dedicates this poem to Emperor Ferdinand III, who had played a crucial role in you know, organizing the Westphalian uh, uh, peace. And so it seems that he's really consigning Europe to uh, the emperor when he basically uh, presents 18 nations of Europe, which Germany is at the heart, naturally, as it is, you know, the, the home of the, the, well, the imperial crown. And he basically... He goes so much into detail that it is at times boring to read. He depicts the borders of each country. He depicts the, the sort of inner organization. He depicts uh, um, the, the swamps and the fields and the forests of Poland. And, you know, this is all very interesting, of course, if you think about military uh, things, which is you know, crucial for any geopolitical um, vision. He he goes into the history of each nation very much to show the emperor how certain um, claims could be justified or, or not. And um, from all this, we can actually deduce the concept of Europe that is that of a kind of a balance of power, but also kind of a universal monarchy, so, sort of uh, in between uh, Hence, also, Ferdinand is often called the arbiter and the mediator um, of Europe. But I think um, it would be interesting to look more into texts from this sort of geopolitical point of view to kind of really see how policies also came about in connection with geographical visions of Europe. And this section, I mean, very much like the previous two, but I found it less surprising in the plurality of ways in which Europe was being perceived in this period, but more in the in the sheer diversity of forms that were employed to kind of explore and rationalize and communicate um, these interpretations. So, I mean, you've mentioned some of the sources, you know, within these chapters, but they, they range from Rubens paintings to maps to vernacular geographical publications. You've mentioned newspapers and, and these, these published books. Um, you know, what, what does this diversity of, of forms and mediums really tell us about how and which the types almost of people who were partaking in, in discourses on Europe in the early modern period? Um, 
if I if I may, that's a that's a very good question. I think the 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 first aspect that comes to mind is simply the the ubiquity of references to Europe. It seems to have been central to to many different, if not all, different discourses and and many different media. And it and it seems to have been dependent, or its representation seems to have been um, dependent on 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 certain media. So journalism, for example, had a, an affinity to um, depict Europe in its plurality simply because it was published continuously and, and serially or seriously. And one might add that it was not only important for the elites, for the court and the um, and the Rujites, but it, but it may have been interesting to other social classes, even classes that were unable to read. So Marion Romberg, for example, examines the depiction of the four continents in church parishes and in folk culture. And the depiction also had the function to educate people about stereotypical characteristics of the continents. For example, the, the triumph of Christianity in Europe, for example. I can, I can actually point to another interesting example from the 16th century, which unfortunately we didn't cover in the book. In the, in the 1550s, a, a common soldier from, from Riedlingen, southwest of Germany, wrote a very strange treatise in which he imagines that Portuguese soldiers would find an enormous giant uh, who was exactly the size of Europe, and that would he then be married to the Virgin of Europe by Emperor Charles V in order then to vanquish the Turks. And, and little is known about um, the, the author, this soldier. He was obviously able to read, but there are many indications that he was not an academic and that he, that he didn't partake in, in the humanist correspondences. And this could be an indication that the discourse of Europe in the early modern period was much vaster than, than we originally thought, not only with regard to different media, but also socially. And, uh, and texts, I have to say, texts by this soldier, Laux Lerche, are, are very rare, however. But, but there is some indication that, um, uh, that the, the audiences and the authors were socially diverse. And that's certainly, it's kind of the feeling that comes across in the volume that this perhaps was a much broader and kind of um, much more percolating mm. discourse than perhaps people have, have assumed. I, I've, I feel like we have to finally come to the elephant in the room, um, which is, uh, which regards, you know, Europe in 2020. Um, and, and, you know, you've mentioned, Nicholas, already that the volume, you know, consciously stays away from reflections on, on the current mm. discourse on Europe. But it, it's parallels, as, as you and Isabella have mentioned, um, with the early modern context and the ways in which the history of Europe um, has been politicized uh, are just abundant. Um, and I was wondering if you would like to offer perhaps some reflections on, on these points, especially just considering, you know, in, the, in terms of Brexit, in terms of the migrate, migration crises, you know, how fragile the concept of Europe is in 2020 and perhaps, you know, how we should be be thinking about the, the history of Europe and the history of the discourse of Europe? Well, I think if I just may start, uh, Nicholas, I think parallels, uh, even though implicit, are always included in historical looks at Europe, uh, hence also to a certain degree in, in our volume. And what we have come to, to see is that Europe uh, shows an interesting continuity when it comes to crisis and, and conflicts. You know, certain problems that Europe uh, um, faces today 
were actually problems that had already been there in the early modern period. The only difference really is the political, the social and the economic circumstances. For example, questions like does Britain or Turkey belong to Europe was very uh, well fervently uh, um, discussed in the early modern period. Some authors are in favor of it, some of them are not, and it reminds us very much of the Brexit discussion or also of the you know, Turkish uh, EU uh, excess negotiations that have been going on for, well, decades, uh, you could say. Then also this question of whether Christianity is an essential part of Europeanness. You know, we, we find this very much today in basically any populist argument, you know, uh, if you think about the German AFD, the, the Austrian FPÖ, um, if you think about thinkers like Thilo Sarrazin, who have, you know, been announcing the decline of the West in the face of the Muslim threat uh, since the 19, well, 70s, 80s, you know, th these are also questions that have already been raised in the early modern period. And some of the humanists' outlook and on how to, well, go about the Ottomans often reminded me of really, you know, the, the, the populist perils of, of our own times. And also the question of where does Europe start and end geographically, you know, the, these are all questions discussed before. And this all goes to show that the discourse of Europe in a way is timeless, you know. And of course, we should be aware of looking at Europe in sort of a teleological way, you know, uh, thinking that, you know, this is a linear process, early modern Europe started sort of thinking about Europe and here, here we are. I think we should rather think of, you know, these research into early modern Europe as a means to help us understand where we come from and what characterizes Europe at its heart, namely the constant search of what it really is and what it means to be European. I, I think that we can also learn that that, that crises, even, even disastrous ones, have the potential to sort of reveal the inevitability of Europe and, and of uh, European politics, if you will. So, Take the example of the Thirty Years' War. It's destroyed much of Central Europe. Tens of millions of people died. I'm not saying there was anything productive or good about it, to be sure. But it, but, but it also accelerated the accelerated the, the discourse on Europe and made it clear that the nations of Europe are intertwined in such a way that events in one place, by necessity, affect processes in other places. And and every political move then had to take. Its consequence had to take into account its consequences for for the continent. So, and I think that is that is true today. Even even though the the pandemic, for example, led to be, to the shutdown of borders, there is clear evidence that the virus will move beyond them. And and in a way, the the COVID nineteen crisis will show yet again that the Europeans are interconnected densely, that they are bound to each other. Um, and, and, and so much so that, that a medical or political or economic crisis will affect them all. So you could say that, that I think every crisis sort of visualizes uh, the, fact, the fact of Europe, um, if, for better or worse, if you will. Which I think leads me to to send out a copy of your book to to all of all of our UK politicians and perhaps the EU Commission as well. I think they have a great deal that they could could glean from these pages. Before I let you both go, could could you quickly just give us a glimpse into to what exciting projects you're currently working on and that we can potentially discuss on the network in the future? 
Well, I have uh, just finished a concise monograph on Europe and Europeanness in the early modern period in Neo-Latin literature. It is basically an interim report of the main concepts and the main sources uh, in Neo-Latin literature because there, there has not been that much done since, you know, as I said, Neo-Latin is a very young field. And I also give some perspectives on the future of this uh, research within the field. Um, other than that, I have been working on uh, inaugural orations at German universities uh, from 1650 to 1750 um, at the moment. So these inaugural orations are basically orations given by professors when they receive a professorship and the only you know, got their salary and were allowed to the privileges of the faculty once they gave these inaugural orations. And I found that these orations, they serve two main purposes. Firstly, uh, they served as think tanks for political, scientific and cultural developments. And secondly, uh, they were a means of professorial self-fashioning, of careerism and professionalization. And I think they, th these orations uh, are a very good um instrument for me to kind of bring together my political interests and also the sort of educational history, history of ideas sort of um, aspect. Um, I myself, I'm, I'm currently interested in, in saints literature and the depiction of saints and martyrs in the 19th century. And, and that might, might seem like an obscure subject, but, but, but I, I think that, um, uh, that, hagiography and, and saints literature of the early modern period and the medieval period still shape the way um, people perceive um, exceptional and exemplary people in the 19th century and certain genres and motives actually continue um, and, and, and continue beyond the, the enlightenment and the secularization. So it's, it's a reflection on, on, um, on sainthood in modernity really. Nicholas Detering and, and Isabella Walzerburgler, thank you so very much for being um, on the podcast. We uh, This has been a sensational discussion. I feel like listeners have probably gleaned a, a huge amount from, from the discussion. The book is Contesting Europe, Comparative Perspectives on Early Modern Discourses on Europe, 1400 to 1800, published by Brill in 2019. Thank you so much both for your time. Thank, thank you, you very much. for having us. Thank you. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.